Welcome to the Brick Business Show, where we talk about Lego investing, Lego reselling, entrepreneurship, and how people all around the world are using the thing that they love, Lego, to create an income and build a business. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Brick Business Show. And today, I'm super excited to bring you Sean McConville, who recently opened a Lego brick-and-mortar store in Melbourne, Australia, Lego investor turned Lego store owner. Really, really exciting stuff on the cards. And this is a show where we like talking about business and Lego and telling the interesting stories behind the entrepreneurs who start businesses related to the thing that they love, which is, of course, Lego. Sean, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. It's a pleasure. It's really cold this morning in Australia. Cold this morning and early, early morning. We are shooting this evening, my time, early morning, your time, before you open your store. So I appreciate your yep. time. Um, I want to jump into your background because we're going to, we're gonna, you know, take us through the journey here in terms of how you got to where you are today with your store. Uh, your store is relatively new. The, the brick and mortar shop that you've opened recently is relatively new. But I think that that's even more interesting for the viewers and listeners here uh, who can see what is actually possible if they want to uh, to start Thinking about opening stores or, or t- you know, taking their Lego investing businesses to the next level, I think your story is really inspiring for those people. And so I'm excited to get into that. But first, let's start with uh, the beginning. So I guess, you know, where did Lego start for you? Did you grow up on Lego? What, you know, what's your Lego story or background in general? I'd love to say I'd been involved in Lego my whole life, but it's just not true. When I, when I was a kid, my parents would occasionally buy me Lego, but it wasn't it wasn't a big part of what we did. I think it was a bit out of reach for them financially. Um, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, we had a couple of little space sets. Um, it's become an obsession for me now, but back then it wasn't really huge. But when I had my own kids, uh, my kids are nearly 20 and 18 at the moment. So they, uh, when I had those kids, we started to buy Lego. Um, we bought some Star Wars sets. My son was obsessed with Star Wars. My daughter loved the friend sets. Um, very stereotypical for a boy and a girl. Um, we'd build them together. It was a great way for the family to kind of do stuff together. Um, and then over time, we kind of drifted away from that as well as they got more involved in sport and life and boys and girls and school and all the other things that get in the way. Um, but then, uh, my, my partner, my wife passed away about four years ago and, um, Lego was a great way for me to connect with my children who were 14 and 16 at the time. We dug out all our old Lego and we'd sit and just chat and build and we sorted and we started to put all the Lego together into little separate boxes and we had no plan. (laughs) We were just putting them in bags and just uh, trying to make up some of our old sets, Star Wars sets that we built 10 years earlier. Um, at the time, though, I, I was working in a large corporate. I was working for a massive wine company, the biggest one in the world, um, doing pricing and finance and uh, commercial intelligence. And I was really starting to hate the whole corporate life. Because um, of our situation with the family, We, I, I stopped working, um, started to collect a little bit of income protection. And... Uh, we started to buy some Lego um, and I thought, well, I looked at some of the old Lego that I wanted. I was buying UCS sets like the Superstar Destroyer and the Death Star and some of those sets and they were, you know, $1,500 <laughs> compared to what they retailed for in Australia, remembering we're in Australian dollars here, so our prices are going to sound higher than what most of your listeners are used to. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe I could buy two of the current sets or three and uh, sell the other two when they uh, start to appreciate after they, uh, you know, after they retire. And I didn't, I hadn't seen anyone else do it. I hadn't really been watching any videos or seen anything that was really um, read any press about it. It was just an idea at the time. And I purchased uh, multiples. Um, and then COVID hit. And uh, we were trapped in the house for two years. <laughs> oh, wow. um, as Melbourne had what is arguably the strictest lockdown in the world. Um, yeah. We were trapped in our homes for close to uh, 200 days out of a year. And uh, so we weren't allowed to leave the house. We had curfews. Um, we weren't allowed to be out, out after 8 o'clock. All the shops shut at 8. Everyone had to stay home. No one went to school. So Lego became the only thing that was really particularly interesting. So the biggest project became this Imperial Star Destroyer. Which, uh, that was six months' work, um, $4,000 worth of Lego, 20,000 pieces. Um, it took about 260 hours, I think, of build time um, to get it done. And now it's a feature piece in the shop. But uh, I ended up buying close to two or $300,000 worth of Lego in that short period. You know, in that two years while I was at home, I was buying closer to seven or eight of the sets that I really thought would do well from an investing point of view. Um, I really wasn't selling much because I'd only been buying for a couple of years. Nothing was close to retirement. Nothing was retired. And I probably made some mistakes. Um, I've bought a few sets that may not appreciate much at all. Um, but the vast majority of what I've purchased, um, I started watching Brick Bucks. I started watching Wolf of Bricks. I started watching um, multiple podcasts and uh, multiple YouTube videos and starting to get my head around what um, would work for me as a business um, with the plan to start uh, selling as soon as a proportion of my stock that I had was able to be sold. Um, I applied for an Amazon um, shop and I got approved to do that, and I got a uh, an eBay store and a Facebook marketplace, but I still wasn't selling anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and the big, but I, that that's not through any um, lack. You know, it was through lack of effort. I really wasn't really trying to sell anything. I'd sell maybe ten sets just for to try it out. Yeah. But I got a little frustrated with the fees. Um, I got scammed a couple of times with, uh, and I just thought. I've got a real issue here and I found a niche. Um, there were a lot of people who were lacking trust in, uh, I guess, eBay selling. Um, they weren't sure what they were going to get. I was talking to a lot of customers that wanted to touch and see what they were buying. And uh, and there was a particular distrust in the used market. Um, when you think about, you know, buying a, a set that's been, I guess, reconditioned, um, missing pieces and broken boxes and turning up crushed and all sorts of stuff um, with a lack of care. So um, I missed people. I'd been stuck inside for two years. We came out of lockdown and I thought, I'm not going back to corporate. I'm going to open a shop. And uh, I found a little location near my home um, that was within walking distance of three schools um, and was on a, a relatively busy shopping strip no other Lego stores within 15 Ks. Um, there's probably only the, the only real Lego stores that are nearby is the big Lego branded ones. 
And I thought, I'm not going to have to compete with those guys because 90% of what I sell, um, they don't stock. And uh, it's been great. It's been really, um, really, really successful. What a journey so far, Sean. It's it's amazing. And so um, when you, you mentioned that, you know, COVID was kind of a starting point for you in terms of like scaling up your buying and different things like that. And, you know, also on the building front, getting more interested in Lego, um, you know, building with your, your uh, kids. Um, but when did it transition from that? I'm going to buy two or three of a set just to cover my cost of my set into, okay, there's actually something pretty big here that, you know, I can probably make into a massive business. Was there ever an kind of an aha moment, like a sudden realization for you? Do you remember when that happened or, because it sounded like you, you already kind of knew that Lego goes up in value over time. And so can you pinpoint the, the moments when you started to realize that and realize the opportunity with Lego investing? Um, it, it, to be perfectly honest, it was, um, it was YouTube. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, you're trapped in the house, you have your phone and your uh, laptop is your only real contact with the world. Yeah. And, um, you know, I started to watch various YouTube videos, including yours. Um, and I, I think actually going back and as a, as a pricing expert, as a market researcher, as a marketing and sales guy for 25 years, it was really just a, my superannuation is not big enough. Um, my retirement fund, because you, I don't know what you, you call it over in the USA. Um, 401k um i could i could turn this into something and the worst case scenario is that i have two or three hundred thousand dollars worth of lego that i can sell at what i paid for it the big realization for me is it's never going to lose value you know so there's there's limited risk in selling lego versus or buying lego versus a lot of other investments i lost some money um, and this is going to sound silly, but I, I was doing some semi-professional sports gambling and some semi-professional poker playing and, you know, I was making money from that, but the risk is just was out of control. Um, you know, I wasn't making enough or, or losing enough to impact at all on my uh, hip pocket. And I thought, well, this means that I can create some security for my children um, when I retire, I'll have something to, to do and I'll have an income. So the realisation was just that it was, it was a bit of an evol- evolution rather more than, a, than a, an aha moment. Yeah. And I fully agree with what you're saying because, you know, there is, and I had that same kind of a journey where I started to realise not only do the values increase by massive amounts, but also the risk is very limited with Lego because, if we can buy them at great prices, uh, you know, we're building a margin of safety into the investment. And so if you're buying 30% below retail, your worst case scenario is likely to be selling at retail or a little bit under retail and breaking even um, unless, you know, you have a massive freak accident and there's a leak in your storage or anything like that. But that's why we get insurance. Um, you know, th- th- in terms of actually selling for, um, you know, to get your money back out, it becomes very, very easy if you learn how to buy at great prices. And we connected early on in your journey as well. And we've had a couple of conversations. And I remember at that time, 
you were buying stuff at incredible prices. So do you want to talk a little bit about some of that, some of the early kind of um, the, the moment where you started kind of taking this thing seriously and going out into, and, you know, into the wild and sourcing Lego inventory and different things like that? I do remember you were getting things at great, great prices. What was that? What was that journey like? Yeah, it was. I think one of the important parts of this is that I had fairly good capital um, outlay, and that's you know part of the challenge for a lot of people that are getting into investing. Um, but I, um, even if you were starting out as someone with a limited amount of capital, the the great prices are really critical. Um, you know, I. I my, my my assumption that I would at least be able to break even in the future was built on buying stuff at retail and selling at the same price as what I purchased it for. But I started to look very carefully for um, the great prices. Um, in Australia, we are fortunate. I don't know if this is the same in other countries. There's a product called Brickhawk um, that actually uh, searches all of the sites across the market and gives you alerts whenever any retailer is selling the products that you've tagged below 30% off, you know, more than 30% off. So, you know, I'd be getting alerts at four o'clock in the morning that Amazon was doing a deal or Costco or, or Toys R Us or any of the other major retailers. So my focus became entirely on sourcing any product I could possibly buy at a minimum of 30% off. And I was seeing sometimes 40% off, the challenge with a lot of people is most people don't know the prices of Lego and Toys R Us, or sorry, Lego would be selling a product at retail for like, for example, the, uh, the Harley Davidson Fat Boy um, was retailing for about $110, $120 in Australia. And I was seeing it um, as we got to the end of you know, clearance sales and closer to retirement and, and various places, Target was advertising at a 20% off, but Target was already 15% cheaper than Lego with their base price. So you're compounding the to the retail price. And I knew, and I was seeing people sell it for retail online on eBay. So I knew I could immediately make just by selling it straight away a 20% return after you take out fees from eBay. Mm-hmm. So I just, and I looked at that product and thought it was going to be a winner. And, uh, that was probably my first deep investment, you know, and I, I, most of the retailers in Australia, unfortunately limit you to five products for the, the harder to sell stuff. Yep. But I would buy five from target and five from big W and five from Costco and five from Amazon mm-hmm. with the view that, you know, as it was getting closer to retirement, I felt that it was going to increase by at least 50% almost right away. Yeah. Um, so you're compounding the the thirty percent, thirty five percent off, and some sometimes forty five percent and fifty percent off. You know, I was buying the product in some cases for seventy dollars when it retailed at one twenty, and uh, and now it's one of my best sellers at two hundred dollars. So, yeah. you know, it's that's where that's where the benefits come, and probably seventy percent of my stored away stock in the business is retiring this year. So I know that Christmas and early next year are going to be a boom. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so on that note, there was a period of time where you mentioned that you were buying and you weren't selling, um, yeah. you know, and, and that early part of a lot of Lego investors journeys is a little bit stressful uh, because yeah, they, you know, they're trying to, 
they're trying to convince themselves and others that the thing is going to work and they're only buying what they can't sell yet because the retirement hasn't happened or anything like that. Um, how did you feel during that time? Were you, you know, super confident in what you were doing? Because I know you were, you were deploying a lot of capital uh, into the business. Was there ever a point where you felt a little bit nervous or shaky on your approach or were you kind of very sound strategically and you knew exactly where things were going? I'd love to say I was sound strategically. <laughs> I was locked in and loaded. Um, I think the fear came in a little bit when I applied for my Amazon shop uh, about eight or nine months ago, and I saw the reality of the fees. <laughs> um, and I saw the reality of um, the overheads with regards to storage. Um and I was I was spending close to a thousand dollars a month for storing, you know, close to two thousand sets, and and the panic set in. Um, I thought maybe I've been a bit rash, and I I considered actually going back into corporate to get a a full time job to mitigate some of the risk. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I I chatted to friends. I had a, a really good mentor that uh, my friend Matt that um, works in distribution started his own business as a consultant. He consults to retailers. And, and I think the network of people that I started to find around me actually helped me realize that I was on the right path. I just needed to confirm it with other like-minded individuals um, because certainly my close friends and my partner were less convinced. <laughs> yep. Um, because there was no, you know, when are you going to start selling? When are you going to start selling? You know, there was no, is it going to be okay? Um, because I was also buying and selling sneakers and that wasn't going great. Yeah. Um, sneakers are a lot more risky because they're linked to fads. You know, Lego is less fad based. You know, you, the, the fashion is a lot more fickle. And I, and I, and I, and, and, and also the other thing is customers in the Lego space are a lot friendlier than the customers in the, the sneaker space. Good point. Yeah. So um, I found it a lot more pleasant. But then, you know, opening a store, very risky. I had another panic moment. Yes. When uh, I started to advertise and uh, online, just Google and Facebook. And I only sold in the first week, I sold maybe 10 sets to, you know, seven customers. I made about $1,000 my profit was probably about $200 after like, you know, without overheads, without rent, without anything else. So I, I panicked a little bit at that point. Um, second week I sold $2,000 worth. In the third week it doubled again. In the fourth week it doubled again. And I have a look back. That's, that's, I love hearing that. That's so incredible. And so I want to dig deep on the store for sure, but on the point about leaving your job, leaving corporate because I know there's a lot of people out there who have that dream and you know they would love to to do that and to free themselves from whatever job that they they don't like so that they can spend their time doing the things that they love um what was that decision like for you and when did that happen so that was you you mentioned it was after pandemic but it was before the store so were you planning on lego investing being the kind of the main income or had you already planned the store before you actually quit your job? What was that jump like? Um, I'd already quit my job. I hadn't planned the store. Um, I'd planned to go 
back into something um, working and the Lego was going to supplement that income. Okay. Um, I think the biggest kicker for me was um, just the mathematics of it, you know, like sitting down and realising that with the margins that I could achieve from selling Lego in a physical store, I would be able to cover the lease and outgoings being, you know, expenses and break even. And I'd only need to sell probably 30 or 40 sets a week and make three or four, you know, $3,000. Um, and I thought, well, at the very, very least I can go back to work in this capacity and it'll be less pressure than corporate. I didn't put any pressure on myself to make a heap of money. I put, I, I put myself in a situation cause I really want to work again full time. You know, the, the, the issues I had with the grief and the anxiety attached to my family passing away. Yeah. I saw this as a pathway to meet people again and be as an extrovert, as a person who loves to talk as it's apparent from this video already. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed seeing customers and and i thought uh, i'd love to give this a, sh a shot so i have only signed a short lease you know for just under a year um to try and see give it a go um and my intent was to see if, if it felt good if i felt good emotionally if i could mitigate risk and break even i'd be happy but yeah. I, I i can already see it being quite profitable and i don't need to, I, I don't feel like i now need to go back to work that's so amazing. And yeah, like it's, I, I could see your point about, you know, you wanted to, you, the community aspect, right? Because honestly, for me, um, that would be why I'd want to open a Lego store too, like a, a yeah. you know, physical store, uh, because, you know, it just seems like such an, such an enjoyable thing to do. You know, I handle Lego sets all the time, but it's all e-commerce for me. Um, yeah. you know, so it's not so much handling the product. It's more engaging with the community and, having that aspect and those discussions, having conversations all day long about Lego sets, new sets, retired sets, minifigs and different things like that. The things that we all love. And um, I can see the community aspect being super powerful uh, for sure. But where did the original idea come from? Do you, can you recall, I know you're kind of saying that you could see the opportunities and stuff with the brick and mortar, but like, do you remember where, did you ever kind of, even consider opening a brick and mortar store for anything else before Lego? Was, was there right. any background of that in your family, anything like that? Or like, where did this originate? Did you just, did you see it in some community or on online somewhere that you kind of thought I could do that? And I think it'd be better than the investing front or do you remember? Um, to, to be honest, it was my lack of ability to find somewhere where I could look at what sets were available outside of the current retail market. Um, there was no one else in Australia really selling vintage and retired and interesting Lego in a physical capacity. Yeah. Um, I'd love, I, I, I don't think there was a single moment. It was just an, evo an evolution in my brain with regards to opportunity. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, I did look at, um, I did probably spend about two months looking, doing some research and I looked at models that worked in the US 
And because I thought there wasn't one in Australia that was doing what I wanted to do. You know, there's other, lots of little online stores that have popped up. You know, there's, and there's some really great Lego stores that are, you know, exclusively Lego. There's one called Iron Rick James Bricks and there's, there's uh, another one called TRK Toys and there's another one called Toy Bricks. They're around, but they're in the outer suburbs. And I've, I've opened up right near the city, near the CBD. And that central location is a winner. Um, I, I, it, it happened very fast. It was just literally, I saw a shop. I thought that would look really cool as a Lego shop. Maybe I should get a lease. Wow. Stuff it, let's do it. <laughs> That's I just, amazing. I just signed the lease and started filling it with Lego and it went from there. But I think so it, there was, was no it was... It was a confidence. It was a confidence that I knew that I could sell these yeah. products because no one else was selling them like I was. Lack of competition, also a pretty solid understanding of the product by that point, right? You knew Lego pretty well and you yeah. knew the demand was there. Yep. And, yeah. I, and I, I also know there's no real pick a brick, like there's no brick pits or places where people could walk in and like dig through Lego and buy stuff. There's, there's a couple of small ones that run markets occasionally. Um, and there's some really, you know, really good ones in the outer suburbs, but there was no one where you could just do it on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, outside of preventions and all those sorts of things. Yep. Um, and it sounded to me like picking the location, you know, there wasn't a ton of analysis that you had to do. You didn't go in and look at like foot traffic on this street and all of these kind of different things. You just kind of saw a really good opportunity and jumped on it. Yeah, very much so. And um, to be honest, the street I'm on has very limited foot traffic. Um, it's not a it's not a busy shopping strip, um, and I'm a little bit away from the shopping strip as well. But I felt strongly that if I advertised effectively on Google and owned key search terms um, that people use, like retired Lego, rare Lego, vintage Lego, rare minifigures. Star Wars, Lego, lots of different phrases that were searched for consistently that if my name came up at the top of the search, people would drive to come to my store and that I would generate my own traffic through um, people coming from all over the state. And, and I thought, I also very much thought that this would just become a bit of a hub for me selling online. Um, but I would get some nice customers in occasionally. Um, but what I'm finding is that a lot of my customers, probably I was hoping for 70% online, 30% physical. It's actually closer to 80% physical and 20% online. Wow. So, um, but lots of my customers are looking me up online, going through my inventory on the website and then driving up to sometimes an hour, hour and a half, two hours to then physically look at the product and assure themselves that it's in good condition. And, and I, I really like that because if you can get someone to come into a bricks and mortar store, they're more likely to be loyal to you as a supplier for that current purchase. They'll potentially buy more than one set because they see what else you've got and you've got them in the store. And also they're more likely to come back to you for all of their products because they feel like they're helping the little guy. 
rather than um, the large like Lego.com or Bricks Megastore or Amazon. Um, they feel like they're supporting someone like them. Yes. Yeah. And uh, they'll continue to buy from you. So I have customers that are happy to pay full retail for a product. They could live five minutes away from a Lego store where they can buy it 30% off, but they'll still drive to me to buy it physically because they don't want to give their money to a large corporate. That's super fascinating. And do you think that there's any sort of aspect of experience that they get in your store that makes them feel that way? You know, is it that you maybe go out of your way to be chatty and friendly with people when they walk in the door? Is it that? It's critical. Yeah. It's critical. Like my reviews on um, Facebook and Google and also the amount of people that comment um, on various articles and stuff, the most consistent feedback I get is that, um, yeah, they say Sean or the owner or the person who I spoke to was a true Lego believer. You know, he was passionate, understood the product and anything that they asked about Lego if I didn't know the answer to, I knew it before they left because I'd look it up. So, you know, I've learned in the three months, I've learned more about the history of Lego than you can imagine because people are happy to share. And I get customers who stay in the store for sometimes up to three or four hours, just, you know, browsing, chatting, digging through the Lego pit. And I've now employed, for example, two of my best customers to sort Lego and talk to customers about their passion as well. They're almost, one of them's a young guy who's 16 that is um, almost a Lego savant. You know, he, he he can look at a minifigure and identify what it's worth and what set it goes in and customers love that. Yeah, yeah. they love that passion and understanding of their product. So I'm very conscious of if I employ people, they're going to be people that live and breathe Lego, not just someone who's good with customers or you know, uh, good with, you know, uh, work hard. <laughs> you know, I know they, I still want them to work hard, but number one priority is passion for Lego and passion for the product. I, it makes total sense because Lego is the kind of thing that the, the, the people who are into it, you know, it's a very niche, it's a very niche product. The people who are into it want to talk about it they want to learn more about it they want to engage about it and so you know having that in the store is going to bring people in they're going to want to be there for the experience not just to buy something um you know there's multiple reasons that they're going to want to be there including feeling the product like you said making sure that it's not too damaged and different things but also just being there to talk to people about the thing that they love it's, um, it's that's probably very important and, and i and i initially i tried to focus on just having displays of things that they may not have seen um, so that people would come in and go, oh, I haven't seen that before. So it creates almost like a museum mentality or, a, or a, you know, uh, an experience. I've actually had people ask me how much it costs to enter my store um, after they've seen, like, pictures or videos of it. Um, and because they're used to paying to go to a brick convention or a mega convention and paying a few bucks to get in. Um, I have, you know, the 20,000 piece Imperial Star Destroyer. I've got a 5,000 piece um, Super Mario. Um, I have a full street of, um, the, you know, modulars. I have a yellow castle, set 375. Got the original space sets. 
um, the first Technic car. I've got the little cigar boxes of Lego that came out in the 50s. Um, I've made a real conscious effort of sourcing Lego that people will also create either nostalgia for them or um, excitement or memories of, you know, when they were a kid and or, wow, I've never seen that before. Yeah. So that, so they tell their friends, you've got to go and have a look at this shop. It's got stuff you've never seen before. And Sean will be able to tell you anything about Lego that you didn't know. And are you finding that, you know, you're going to need to always have stock of those kind of old rare sets that people are excited about? Like the UCS sets, for example, do you want to have one of all of them at all times? And if one sells, you're going to have to go get another one just to, just to say yeah. you have them all? Or is that important? I think it is. Um, they don't sell very fast. Um, they're not great. You don't get a great return on them. Um, but, you know, I make a small margin when I sell a Superstar Destroyer. Yep. I might sell one in six months. Like I haven't sold one yet, but I have one customer that's very interested. But almost, I reckon one in five customers talk about a product on my top shelf that is their grail product that they want to get one day. So they come in to see that set and go, geez, I really want that product. And then they'll spend a couple of hundred bucks and buy something that's a bit more affordable. And so being able to say, oh, I've really got to hope that, you know, one day when I save up enough money, I'm going to buy that Ewok village or the Parisian restaurant or the, the Batmobile. And, you know, I've, I've had to set up things like gift card processes and lay-by processes so that people can put away 50 bucks or 100 bucks a week towards that set that they want to buy in three months' time. That's fantastic. Have you seen Wayne's World? Yeah. Do you remember the scene where he's looking at the guitar? Like the he's guitar. constantly looking at the guitar and he eventually buys That's it. the moment I'm trying to create. So, you know, I agree. I've got a like I've got a UCS TIE fighter and an A-wing in the window and a full modular street. And then I've got a car display that has the orange Porsche, the um, F1 Ferrari, the Bugatti, and the 1989 um, Batmobile and uh, a fat boy. And it's probably, I reckon, 80% of customers that walk past the shop for the first time can't help but stop. It's easily the most looked-in window in the street, and I've got to wash the windows probably every second day to get all the handprints and face prints off the window. That's just um, fantastic. What a problem to have. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's, and it's just, you know, I try to put things that are just out of sight in the shop that they feel like they have to come in. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you first signed that lease, you know, was there, I guess, you know, you obviously had a couple of weeks of planning. How long was there before you had to start actually moving stuff in and setting everything up? Two days. Two, oh, wow. You move, you move fast. So I guess, um, how did the vision come together, you know, at the very beginning? So you signed the lease and now you're at a point where you have amazing displays. You're focusing on the window. You're focusing on having things that catch people's eye and different things like that. Um, was there kind of a, a lot of storyboarding or did you talk to people who run stores or anything like that to get ideas or did you have sudden kind of visuals and a plan for how you wanted this store to look? Right. I had a visual from, from probably two months beforehand, I did um, have a view in my mind of what, if I was going to open a shop, what it would look like. 
my my plan was to like not not to open up immediately, but at some point in the future, buy you know open a physical store to, to you know help with my emotional well being, and it, it, the opportunistic component. It sounds like I didn't. I just jumped and went head first, but I, I did have a bit of a plan. I wanted to create an environment that was homey, welcoming, and where someone wanted to spend time, even just sitting and chatting. So I've got a, a fire, you know, fake fireplace, but it's a fireplace. I've got some lounge chairs in front of that. So the back section of my shop is just a table full of Lego. It's a coffee table, not a stand-up table, with three or four lounge chairs around it, some bean bags and some pillows, um, and a wall of Lego where people could pick Lego off and build their little creation. I wanted to create a situation where people would want to come here every week yeah. and, like, it was part of their routine, you know, stop at the Lego shop and have a look at the minifigs, build something with the kids. Um, if you can get the kids into the store, their parents will spend money on themselves. <laughs> and that's, that was a big part of my vision um, was to create something for all ages that would blow people's minds and make them want to come back. It just sounds to me like you from the very beginning had the right mindset around, you know, around this. And I've kind of mentioned this in the past, but passionately believe that retail stores today, brick and mortar stores today have to create experiences because they're competing yep. with online and e-commerce. And so it has to make people feel a certain way. You have to tap into the emotions of your buyers because yep. that's what's going to drag them in the door and bring them in and keep your business moving. Um, I wanted to ask you about your stock in the store right now. And, and I guess when you were first opening up, how do you think about your stock? How do you think about the inventory you wanted to have in there? Did you have, you know, it, you obviously deployed a lot of capital for Lego investing purposes. You had a big inventory. Did you feel like you had everything you needed to open or was, was there kind of certain goals you had in mind of things that you knew you needed? How was I, that I, kind of process? Yeah, it was, it was fascinating um, and really challenging at the start because my vision for the store was for rare, collectible and hard, hard to find sets and to create, you know, have sets, sets that were at a premium that would create a situation for customers to come from long distance to spend a large amount of money on th something that they've been looking for for a while. But when you are located in a shopping strip with lots of kids walking past from all the schools every day, I first my first week open I had lots of people come in we're so excited to see you in the area we've not had a lego a shop like this around here i had no products in that first week for school for parties for birthdays for gifts for you know the 15 dollars set the reward for being a good boy that day or a good girl the reward that is, I, I i'm directly across the road from a busy pub like a hotel bar whatever you call it we call it a pub here mm -hmm. um it, it, and people would look out the window of the pub see my lego shop across the road walk across with their kids buy them a you know a city forklift or a you know street sweeper or a car for twenty dollars or fifteen dollars so that they could entertain their kid while they had a couple of drinks with their friends How perfect! and i didn't have anything like that so the both uh, the second day after i opened i opened on a thursday um, on the Friday, I um, opened at midday instead of my normal 10 a.m. And I went to all the big department stores and 
bought everything that they had under $50 on sale. Wow. So anything that was 20% off or better, I just bought multiples of everything. I'd walk out with two or three or four trolleys of cheap, easy to buy products. Uh-huh. And I stocked an entire shelf at the front of the store with just lots of individual products that would sell quickly to young kids. And that's probably what doubled my sales in the second week. Yeah. Um, as people started coming in there just to have a look. And I realized, I know this is going to sound like a bad phrase, but it's like a gateway drug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it so is, though. It really is. Yeah. You know, like buying the, um, the little car for the kid means that within three or four years, they'll probably buy the big one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, exactly. buying a little Creator Dragon for $15, they'll probably be back buying the $200 Ninjago Dragon for their birthday. Exactly. Yeah. And I absolutely love that you're right across the road from a, from a bar, from a hotel. Um, I can really see that being a massive pull factor for, for, you know, as, as you mentioned, for parents who just want to entertain their kids, just, just stop bothering me. I want to, you know, relax with my dinner. Let's go to the Lego store. That's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's been great. So you, you know, you brought in a lot of the stuff that you had in storage for your Lego investing business. You went and stocked up on a lot of those lower priced sets and then was there kind of anything else that you realized, okay, there's something else that I need or, you know, what about yeah. used Lego at that point? Did you kind of start thinking about used sets and different things like that? Yeah. Minifigs? There were, or... two, there were two big shifts in my inventory that needed to happen. One was sourcing a lot of the high-end products. Um, so like your UCS sets and your, um, I, I felt like I needed things like um, the, the, the Ninjago Gardens and Ninjago City stuff, the Simpsons House, um, the Batman Tumblr, the you know the um, you know Superstar Destroyers, and I needed pirate ships because every you know I said I was rare, retired, and hard to find Lego, but I was only having a lot of products that were rare and retired from last year. Yeah. So, and I, I didn't. I looked like a vintage store, but I didn't have any vintage stock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I basically spent my first two weeks revenue plus a little bit more on just buying one of each of the big expensive sets yeah. and just having a one big top shelf of like proper vintage sets. And then um, I put out a few of my old sets because I had like one of each of the main UCS sets in my own collection. So I went back and I went through them and made sure that they were complete and put one of each of those on the shelf to give it more of a vintage feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an original, like the, the different TIE fighters from like 2000, Django Fett, Slave One, things like that, that were almost out of reach for a lot of people. But um, I built a couple of them, put them on the shelf. I put the rest in box and they sold quicker than my new stock. Wow. They were like, people would rather spend a thousand dollars on a used Death Star than fourteen hundred dollars on a new Death Star because for them, in their mind, they could it was the same experience. Yeah. And um, so what I did is I started to I, I, I designed a new logo um, called Brickville Certified Certified Complete. And we would check that all the parts were in there 
and we provided customers with a guarantee that if any pieces were missing, we'd replace them. And I think that that's something you can't get from Amazon or eBay or any other online used portal. Yeah. The customer service is, is sorely missing and you can't, if it's missing five pieces, you're not going to, it's going to be really tough to go back to that person and say, can you get those five pieces for me? Yeah. But um, I have, I built, I'd, I'd started building a bit of a BrickLink store anyway, and I had all my parts catalogued from that COVID period. So I knew that I could find the pieces if they were missing, particularly because they were my sets. I figured they'd be in my house somewhere. So I would, if they were missing, I'd just find them. But now we've built up a 400,000 part BrickLink store that I don't have online, but it's for my shop. Wow. So now people, yeah, yeah, I've got about 12,000 unique items in that BrickLink store. So there's about 4,000 drawers upstairs. Um, and we've also got the brick pit where there's lots of like people will come in and say, do you buy Lego? So I opened up a site, a section of my site where people can sell Lego to me. Yeah. And I like yesterday I bought um, a guy's entire collection. Um, so it's about 140 kilograms of Lego and um, close to a 1300 minifigures. And the, the minifigures have become a massive seller. So I shifted my entire, I've shifted. So there's the two shifts I was talking about. One was having high-end stuff. The second one was used. And as part of used, it was minifigs. Okay. So used and minifigures have become probably 50% of my sales. Right. And 80% of my profit. Oh, wow. So uh, I've really pivoted towards tra being a trader in Lego, more like a second-hand store or a pawnbroker than just a, a Lego seller. And was that not in the plan when you were first starting out? Did you, that kind of just a sudden realization that, you know. That was, was opportunistic. That yeah. was, you know, I did, I did hear after about three or four weeks, I watched a video with a guy, there's a guy, Andy's Bricks. Okay. And I watched an interview with the guy who owns Andy's Bricks in the US and he talked about how, um, you know, his shift to use Lego was one of his most profitable areas. So I, I pushed hard to go into that area. And one of the things I do now is search Facebook Marketplace and um, BrickLink for bargains. Yeah. And uh, it's important. Like yesterday I bought, you know, this set, mm -hmm. which is, you know, not, a, not an expensive set, you know, but it's – with uh, Boba Fett, the TV show, it's got, you know, Boba Fett and the Salek Pilk and all that sort of stuff. Yep. And, you know, I bought that on Facebook Marketplace, missing one minifigure, but I bought it for like $15. And I know that I can buy the minifigure that's missing for $15 on BrickLink, certify it as complete and sell it for $100. There you go. So I really I, like, I, like source them. Yeah. I, I really like what you said about um... – uh, I guess the, you know, the fact that people are more likely to buy used Lego in store, especially with that certified complete banner, uh, because I think it makes total sense. You know, there's always going to be some fear of buying used sets on eBay, you know, or anywhere yeah. that something's yeah. going to be missing. And it comes back to, again, you having the great relationship with them and the customer service, because now not only do they know where to go if they're missing a part, but they have the relationship with you as well. So they trust you. Um, yeah. So I can definitely see for a lot of people, you know, it 
not only is a new way for them to buy used Lego, for a lot of people, it's probably the only way now because maybe they were afraid to do it online before and now all of a sudden they yeah. have a way to do it. Um, you know, so all of a sudden that's probably contributing to some of the people driving an hour or two to get to your store because, you know, they're going to buy used stuff, they're going to buy minifigures and, and you know, and all of those things. Um, but it sounds for you, it sounds like a big kind of a, a new area that you've had to learn, right? Like minifigs, for example, is a whole specialized area. You know, we have different. communities that focus only on minifigs. They're minifigure investors or sellers. And there's a specialized knowledge that goes with that. Um, have you found some of that stuff difficult in terms of the pivot to use the minifigs, uh, you know, learning the game and kind of learning what's what in those areas? Yeah, it, it was, it was, I think the 16 year old boy that I spoke about was really important for me to work that out. Um, he would come in and, you know, with his parents and these parents were happy to, for him to just sit there for an hour or two and just talk to me about minifigures. Um, I just drained him of all of his knowledge as fast as I could. And then I, I had to employ him because I was getting him in here too often. Um, and, you know, I I think one of the big triggers for me was when one guy came in and bought a set that I had new for about $150 and it was a Black Widow set that had Taskmaster in it. So a Marvel character. And the guy just wanted the minifig. He didn't care at all about the set. And he just he paid the hundred and fifty dollars for the set just so that he could get the minifig because he didn't want to have to try and find it online. And he brought back the set without the minifig and said, "Do you want it?" He didn't even care about getting any money for it. He just gave it back to me, <laughs> and that that was a big trigger for me. Going, I need more minifigs, so I went out and sourced as many minifigs as I could, and I I probably accumulated about eighty percent of those minifigs were worth nothing. Um, you know, next to nothing. They're just, you know, cops and, um, you know, firemen. But I pulled all the heads off and put them in a little minifig factory and I'd paid less than a dollar for most of those. And now kids come in and they build their own minifigures and uh, they pay $6 for them. Yeah. And their parents love that because they can just drop by on the way home from school and it keep, it's like a little reward for their children. And so in three months I've sold over 600 minifigures. Well, it's probably my, one of my best inventory wise, best, you know, physical sellers. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like it's a constant sourcing effort, right? Are you finding yeah. you need, you need to find people to give you a constant supply of minifigures so that it's probably less work, right? Yeah. So what, what I'm doing now is actually going to people that have good stock in their Bricklink store and offering them money to buy the entire store. Amazing. Makes so sense. I bought I bought one guy's store for seven thousand dollars and it probably has about you know, like I said, it had 140 kilos of Lego and it's all catalogued. And it's and I bought all of his minifigures as well. Yeah. And like they, you know, when I say that it's less than a dollar for some of these minifigs, some of them are not. Some of them are quite expensive and they're not, you know, I don't make money on them, but I think what I offer that people are prepared, paying for is not that I think Customers understand that they're paying a bit of a premium, but they're paying a premium for the experience and the access and, you know, that I've got overheads and they don't sit there and go, oh, he's ripping us off. He only paid a dollar for that and he's charging us five or six. They look at it and go, but my kids spend 20 minutes in there building this minifig and I talk to them about their minifig. I get them to name the minifig for me. And then we take, sometimes we take photos of the really cool ones and I share them on my Instagram. Yeah, and then those kids can then say I got shared by Brickville. 
Amazing. Yeah, they took a photo of what I built and look, this is what I built. Yeah. And people are doing displays in the back and say so the parents bring them here and they'll play for 20 minutes. And then they go, you entertain my kid for 20 minutes, got to buy something. Exactly. The so reciprocation. It, so it, creates, it creates an experience for them. So we have little displays of things that kids have built and you know, it's it, it's the experience and the emotion of the business is probably the most important part of the physical bricks and mortar, more so than the having the right products. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, and the last thing I've done is I created a specialist. You know, I have lots of people say to me, now that they know I'm here, they go, do you have any of the San Diego Comic-Con poly bags? Do you have any of the, you know, do you have the any retro bionicles you know do you have uh futuron or mtron or blacktron figures so now i write it on my list and i make an effort to find it i have fabuland in store and i didn't even know what fabuland was before (laughs) and now i have fabuland figures and there's a whole cult following for fabuland it's fascinating Hmm. so i wanted to come back to a thing that you mentioned, you know, in passing, which is you have a 400,000 part Bricklink store upstairs. Um, I, I guess, you know, do you have plans to sell on Bricklink? Do you have plans to open it? Is that always going to be for your store? And are you letting customers up there to buy parts right now? Or are you kind of, is that a part of your business, selling parts in store or online? I do sell parts. Um, I don't have like a link online for it or anything. It's literally just a physical thing where people can come in and go, here's a list of what I need and then we'll find it for them. Mm. I've started to offer a service for people that hate Bricklink. Bricklink is really cumbersome for a lot of people and people feel really fearful and, and of, of technology sometimes, particularly mock builders, and they get really frustrated with the lack of user friendliness. So what I do is I get them to email me a list and we provide a premium service of sourcing all the parts for them from a combination of my store and other stores. And then we just charge a picking and finding fee. So I have people that come in and go, I'm building the Eiffel Tower. I need all the parts for it. And I'll give them a quote. That's fantastic. Yeah. So So um, it's my, my intent is not to open a Bricklink store because it's very time consuming and painful. But if I can create a premium service that people pay a little bit more for to source what they want, it's like a Lego curation service, if that makes sense. Uh You know, I also have people who come in and say, I need this set and I can't find it. Can you just get it for me? And I'll, they don't, a lot of people don't know about Bricklink. A lot of people don't know where to buy parts or sets that they are hard to find. They just look on eBay every now and again to try and find it. Uh But I know where to look. So yeah. they, they come to me and go, okay, I'll buy this set from you and they'll pay an extra hundred or $200 for me to find it for them. It makes total sense. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the sales and some of the things that are kind of, I guess, your big hitters in the store. Um, I guess, firstly, starting with themes, what are you noticing in terms, in terms of themes? Is there anything kind of that surprised you in terms of what's selling faster than others and what themes are under underperforming and different things like that? Um, Star Wars is the obvious one, so I won't spend much time on that. It's still, you know, a quarter of my sales are Star Wars sets um, because that's where the big collectors are. The ones that have surprised me are um, Duplo. Um, you know, the people are prepared to pay a premium for, like, the Duplo Batman set. 
Um, that's a really good seller for me. Um, Ninjago doesn't do very well. Um, I, I just it doesn't matter. Even the collectible stuff, I've I barely sold any Ninjago, even though I had a whole Ninjago section of like vintage stuff as well. Wow. Um, Marvel superheroes, I can't get enough of. Okay. Particularly um, Spider Man. Um, there's a like people who love Spider Man will come in and their kid will be dressed as Spider Man and they'll walk around looking for Spider Man sets. Yeah. I can't get enough Spider Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and Batman, Batman and Spider Man, just they're, they're probably two favorite superheroes. Um, and Speed Champions, seriously, like. I get a, an unusual customer base for speed champions. They're like not le- like not Lego fanatics. They're, they're car lovers, and you know tradies that work at tire shops and um, you know trades. You know like tra- tradesmen. Sorry, we call them tradies here. But you know people are plumbers and builders and construction workers. We have a lot of construction going on in our street, but the construction workers come in and buy speed champion sets. Interesting. And they don't know how much they are, so you know like. The Ferrari, which was retailing at 30, um, you know, the Ferrari Speed Champion that came out, like, retired last year. And I'm already selling that at $55, $60. So it's – and they just go – that they don't even question the price. They just buy it. And then after they bought the Ferrari, they want all the rest. So they'll build, like – they'll buy 10 of them over the next six weeks. Um, And the Stranger Things set's gone crazy for me. I wish I had more. The Upside Down? Or the brickhead. Yeah. Yeah, the upside down. Wow. The upside down is a massive seller. And you know, I had ten of them, but uh probably giving away some secrets, but I've started to do dynamic pricing. You know, if demand increases, you lift the price a little bit each time you sell one. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because that set the demand has boomed big, big time. I mean, right now on Amazon it's up at four seventy, yeah. I think. Uh, in the US yeah. and it was a two hundred dollar retail in the US. So it's you know it's it's flying. Yeah. It was three it was three hundred and twenty here um, in Australia and um because the exchange rate and transport and all that. Um yeah. but it's selling now for six hundred. Right. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's just mad. And are there any particular sets that are underperforming? Sets that you thought uh, might do well? Uh yeah. Um Probably the, um, the TIE Fighter helmet. Um, I thought it would do better, and I've probably got to drop my price a little bit because there's a lot, there, there seems to be in Australia a lot of people like me that have overstocked the TIE Fighter helmet, and now there's everyone's competing in that space. I mean, it's selling for two hundred, um, which is you know they retailed for ninety, but it's selling slower than I thought it would. Um, so I've just got to I've got to decide whether I hang on to them and sell them later, and which is probably what I'm going to do, and just hold the price rather than drop it because I just don't want to discount. I don't want to be a. I don't want to do any sales. I want to be seen as a premium service. Um, and the the ATSD Raider was a death knell. That was just, you know, now they keep making it and <laughs> ATSD Raider. That, that was a mistake. Um, I've got too many of those, and probably the um, friends, Lego friends, they just they just they don't sell. 
and you can't they don't appreciate either yeah yep. you know they just so i only buy friends now if it's like 50 percent off right okay just to have some is there any big changes you plan to make with your inventory you know and the way you kind of want uh the opportunities that you want customers to have when they come into the store and what you want to have on the shelves that you haven't done yet? Um, I'm going to, I want to significantly increase my used inventory. Um, so buying, I'm focusing on auctions and buying estates and buying, you know, um, bulk lots of collections because collectors tend to look after their sets better. Kids bringing in the sets and parents bringing in the sets that the kids had when they were younger is like they they think that their sets are worth more than they are, right? Because they've seen a video saying it's worth more than gold, and you know, or seen a an article or someone's told them that Legos appreciated heaps, and they'll come in with a you know a box of loose Lego with maybe one kilo of Lego in it and expect they're going to get a hundred dollars for it. Yeah, and I offer them ten dollars, and it blows their mind. <laughs> um. But people that are collectors, oh, I really want to focus on getting collectible sets that are hard to find and proper vintage, proper vintage sets. You know, like for Star Wars, that means early 2000s. Um, I need to significantly uptick in vintage castles and trains. Um, they're the most collectible sets that people want is from his historical stuff. The other thing you've got to be prepared to do is while you have cash flow for current sets, I need to focus on having the large, hard to find stuff and be patient with it. Not, not, not worry about it, not selling because eventually it will eventually. And um, how do you think now about, you know, the investing mindset, because now you have the opportunity to sell your inventory right away. Right. And, you know, if you buy something for 30% off, you could sell it immediately for a 30% margin or thereabouts, um, a 30% return, I should say. Uh, but what about holding things long-term? Are you still doing some of that? Yeah, I, ha I have to. Um, I probably haven't done enough. That's probably one thing that I've got to pivot to, is making sure that I have enough cash flow to do the same thing towards the end of this year when everything retires. I, have a, I, I still focus on when I see something at 30% off, I buy a bunch of it but I only put a third of whatever I buy in the inventory for the store and I put away two thirds of it. So if I buy, um, for example, the, um, what sets retiring soon that I've bought a lot of, uh, to, to the architecture Tokyo um, is retiring this year. It's probably the only architecture set that's retiring. Yeah. I have good sellers for me is Dubai, Las Vegas, and um, San Francisco. But I also have Tokyo, London, and uh, New York on the shelf. Right. But I'm very conscious of not of making sure that I maintain two-thirds of what I've bought at a discount. I put it away in storage, and I've got a sign on it that says, do not sell, so that none of my young guys pick it up and bring it downstairs and put it in the shop. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm happy to take the 30% margin on some of it, and then one third, I want to make 100% to 150% next year on ROI. And then my view is if I can, if it's something that's going to grow well, I want to put another third away to sell in three or four years. So I've got to have a long-term view for having stock in the future while maintaining cash flow in the short term. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole kind of new challenge to, to balance with, I guess. And that, 
brings me a little bit to one, one thing I'm curious about, which is, you know, how are you learning? How are you learning about running a store? You know, like, is there resources out there for you to actually figure these things out? Such as, you know, point of sale systems, like your, your cash register, or you were mentioning that you are doing like a gift card system now and, you know, allowing people to kind of start paying offsets before they can fully afford them and different things like that. I guess, you know, is this all trial and error or do you have resources, communities, anything out there that you can actually turn to when it comes to running a brick and mortar Lego store? Um, it's just learning on the go. I'd love to say that there was this tight community of retailers. There's a, I have, I have a, I've developed a friendship with a guy who owns a clothing store across the road that has been really useful in terms of understanding, you know, what, what else I need to consider from a shop display point of view. That's been good. Right. Um, you know, how to grab people's attention on the street. The register square up has been critical for me, you know, having a, it's important to have an inventory management system and stock management system that links to your um, register and your online, that it all is linked. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of risk to then having an, uh, an Amazon store and an eBay store because the inventory management doesn't link okay. and there's no good tools that allow you to do that management between your own inventory and Amazon and eBay and uh, that I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, so if you sell something in the online and it sells at exactly the same time in your store, it needs to disappear off the shelf in either of the two. Um, it needs to prevent someone from buying it twice. Yeah. Um, that can be a little challenging if someone buys something online and then I've, I then sell it to someone in the store and I haven't looked at my order list. So you've got to take, be conscious of looking at when you sell something quickly check the order before you ring it up on the till to make sure no one else has bought it. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, because a lot of what I've got, I've only got one off. Okay. So a lot of trial and error, a lot of just figuring things out as you're going. Very much figuring things out. I mean, I look at, I do a lot of- Hold on, I think your sound cut down a little bit. Can you still hear me okay? Call me. I just cut off the phone call. Gotcha. You're good now. I do a lot of research. I've worked, I've been in market research for 25 years and my clients were people like the good guys, um, Crown, like big retailers, electronics, um, fashion. So I've had 25 years of helping people with pricing, space management and all those sorts of things. So I already had a background in this space that I've been able to take advantage of. A store layout, creating a welcome environment at the top of the store, doing store mapping, so I've been very conscious of building a proper store experience where people walk around different elements, where there's things that delight in every corner of the store um, that create, you know, draw cards for people to move to different areas, you know, moving the things that you don't think will sell very well, some of them to the front and most of them to the back, things like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So knowing that, knowing that, having that background has been really useful. And I've got two people that I'm working with that, sell they they buy it their lego passion is first <laughs> but they're also retailers so they buy stock and i sell it on consignment for them amazing so yeah. selling i'm now selling i've started to consider selling on consignment for people with the ucs sets to have them in shop so offering a service to people who've bought a lot of sets and don't know how to go about selling it 
I just say, well, when I sell it, I'll give you 80, 85% of the value X taxes. Yeah. And people are happy to do that. Why not? You know, why not test it, see how it goes for a couple of months and, you know, make the yeah, decision. That's the plan. Because yeah. I, I think I can significantly expand my um, range and therefore revenue by having selling for other people the rare stuff that are and not tying up cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, all right. I'm going to start moving in the direction of closing us out. You've been really generous with your time uh, this morning. I have two more questions. And the first one is really kind of if uh, you were looking back at your, your opening, and I know we're only a couple of months into you running this store, which some people may find crazy because you're, you know, you've, you've achieved so much in a short period of time. But if you were doing it again, and the, you know, those first 30 days, is there anything that you would do differently? Is there any challenges that you particularly had that, you know, you, you would look at differently? Um, or, you know, do you kind of feel like things played out the way that, the way that they needed to, and it all went really well? Look, it, sales have exceeded my expectations. Um, I've tripled what my target was for the first three months. Um, but that said, if I had my chance to do it again, I would have a proper launch. You know, I did a soft launch and gradually eased my way into it, but I think I could have made more noise um, if I created some excitement around the opening yeah. and did more good Google and Facebook advertising and Instagram. Um, I would have started with potentially some store tour stuff on video and some more Instagram to create momentum. So I do a lot more of that now, um, but I wish I, I would have done that at the start if I thought about it more carefully. And it sounds like that's going really well for you now in terms of like the buzz that's being created. And, you know, I saw some news articles and different things about the store, uh, you know, so now you've probably seen the, the power of some of those things and how they can lift the business so much, um, you know, and it's all, you know, it's all, it's all just smooth sailing as soon as the word gets out. Um, yeah, yeah, I need to create momentum. I needed to advertise. Like, I, they, they didn't come to me, those advertising people. Like, I reached out to local press. I reached out to the big broadsheet articles and, like, and said, hey, I've got a store that might be a little bit different. You might be interested in it. And fortunately, because it's so different to any other store, they go, yeah, that's worth doing. They don't normally do many stores. Now that right there, if anybody is listening here who has a, a physical store selling Lego anywhere in the world or is interested in it, uh, you got to take that away. You got to take that little point right there away. Reach out to the local news news uh, writers, the magazines, the blogs. Um, you know, tell them. You know, if you don't ask, <laughs> you won't receive. So, so I think that's genius. it. Just won't happen. It just won't happen by itself. You've got to. You've got to proactively pursue them and the, they're looking for things for positive things to write about you know too much of the news is depressing and they want good news stories and you you need to you need to make it relatable too it can't just be i have a cool shop you've got to create a story about how you're you know bringing the community together or you know you're working with the schools or you're um you know you've created a hub for the local area and you know you try and make it personal, make it, make it interesting. And then they're more likely to do a story about your store. Fantastic. Yeah. And that creates instant, instant PR and it's free. That's amazing. 
Fantastic. And Sean, last question is, I guess, what's next? What What's your focus going to be on for the rest of 2022? You know, what's your vision uh, from here? So the, the, the three big things that I'm targeting, one is um, October, November, December, um, making sure that I have the stock to handle what I predict to be a quadrupling of sales in that period. Wow. Um and it's going to be, it's it's a challenge to make sure that I don't just sell out all of my hold stock for next year. So I've got to make sure I've got enough stuff that will grab people's attention. Um, I know that I probably need to have a lot of new stuff for that period because used won't cut it as much for Christmas presents. Um, my second one is to find a new location um, locally to maintain the community that I've had, but has doubled the space. Um, so that I can increase my displays, create more of a museum feel and like expand my used range and pick a brick area. So that's the second probably area of focus. And then the third one is to um, significantly grow the on online business um, and create some, some noise and credibility around the online business and consignment business so that people feel like they can sell their Lego through my marketplace rather than through eBay and Amazon. It, I mean, I love that idea mostly because the store is going to add tons of validity to that, you know, and trustworthiness. That's, that's that. my view. Yeah. People are fearful of selling through Facebook marketplace very much so more than ever before. I think um, there's been a lot of scamming, like right. a lot of people selling stuff and then not turning up or asking for PayPal or, my ability to take credit card and have to pay and, you know, those sorts of things, lay buys and create trust because I have an actual physical store where they can go and pick up the product. Yeah. has been one of the biggest wins. Yeah. Amazing. Sean, it's been fantastic watching your journey so far. I'm super excited that I get to continue to, to, to see what you go on and achieve from here. Uh, all great things, no doubt. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your journey with us. Uh, for those who are listening, uh, make sure if you're in Australia, if you're in Melbourne, Australia, go to Brickville, go check it out, say hi to Sean. Um, or if you're not there, uh, go to the website and check out the, the site that Sean has built is uh, brickville.com.au. And uh, you can kind of learn more about Sean's story there and the Brickville journey. Um, if you are new here, don't forget to hit that subscribe button as well. There's going to be plenty more uh, of the Brick Business Show coming where I talk to entrepreneurs in the world of Lego uh, and have really kind of interesting discussions just like this one. So thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Sean, again, thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, my pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star rating. It really does help us to bring you amazing content. And if you want to learn more about building an income with Lego, check out BrickBox.net or find us on YouTube at BrickBox to learn about Lego investing.